Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 6 of Ignite the Flame Audio. You'll be pleased to know that you're halfway through this season. Basically, for those of you who are just joining, I would encourage you to go back to season 1 and catch A Light in the Mist. Otherwise, chronologically speaking, this particular story isn't going to make sense. For those of you who are regulars here, by this point you know how every episode is broken down, where we have a reading of a chapter to you, then we have the Origin of Ideas section, followed by the Tips of the Trade section. So we're going to go ahead and get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow, Chapter 6 A Heart of Ice and Nails Not Oswald Finch No Lantern, George Finch, not Oswald Finch Bloodsnitch have diminished in power somewhat since a few months back McLean assures, reading my body language and picking up on fear Emanating from my every blink If it was, Sergeant, I would have serious doubts with our judicial system What was Oswald to you? Doctor, a symbol of fear, which rallied the darkness of a nation, corrupted an entire species against itself, feeding on the sorrow of its brethren, greedy for power, for glory, and thirsting for war, only to kill for the sake of killing, trying to convince the world of its lack of redemption, the enemy's own spawn, as it were. And you, Doctor, the angel sent to hunt him. Unfortunately, my wings have been clipped, and having spent enough time with them, you find you start to agree with their philosophy and question your own race, only whilst I listen to him. But I have a choice, and when I am confronted, I would rather believe in forgiveness than condemn an entire world to death for its crimes. Well, you remind me of Jekyll in those words. How did Jekyll construct this? With diligence and Flint's craftsmanship, and the mechanics, based on designs by some German architect or something. Very clever person, according to Jackal. Where are Jackal and Flint, McLean? I don't know, Doctor. I wish I knew, but it is good that I don't know, as that which I have been tasked with, I do not wish to complete. Meaning what, exactly? Well, Doctor, let us say you're not the only one who wished to commit dark deeds. Only yours have passed, whereas mine lie ahead. By whose authority? Never you mind, Doctor. Now, let us continue. Look, here. You said the manifest was missing an item. Yes, the compass. It was replaced by the tissue. Now why would an item of importance such as this be replaced by evidence incriminating one of the greatest detectives of our age? Perhaps someone is using this evidence to frame them and remove the true culprit. A silver compass, you say? Yes. Normally that would be the calling card for Bloodsnitch. They leave it behind, taking credit for the murders, so I can't see as to why they would wish to hide the compass. Unless... Unless what? Unless it wasn't Bloodsnitch who removed the compass and placed the tissue. Well, if it wasn't Bloodsnitch, then who could it have been? As I lay my hand upon the manifest, running my fingers across the items, I turn to McLean and state, I don't know, but I will find out, and when I do... No force on earth will stop me from claiming their bodies to further my research. What was that, Doctor? Justice, my good sergeant. True justice. Indeed. Now, if you would excuse me, 
I'm due elsewhere. Ah, I see. Well, don't work too late, will you, Doctor? The sun will eclipse before I give up on what I believe in, Sergeant. That, I assure you. Very well, Doctor. Good luck, and be careful. If Blodsnitch is involved, of that I am sure, Sergeant. But I believe this murder to be perpetrated by another, which may be an entity unto themselves. Indeed. Well, be cautious either way. Thank you for the warning, McLean. But it is not them I need to fear, but another. And if they are wise, they will too. I place my fingertips on the front edge of my top hat and tip it to Sergeant McLean in a gesture of respect. Rotating my body and proceeding up the staircase with each segment unlocking and turning behind me to conceal McLean in a wall of metal and clockwork surrounding him, closing until only his face remains. I look ahead, and the door opens with its master locking system, shifting and changing as a metamorphosis before my eyes. Walking through the doorway, sudden flashes befall me. My mind flickers around past interrogations. The patient committed to the asylum, only to think they had escaped the noose to now be tortured for the truth as a result. No device was inexcusable, no pain too great, and no action too dark. If they were not to suffer in prison, then they would suffer in here. I shake my head violently, lashing out at them, trying to quell this power over me, taking control of my thoughts and turning them against my fellow man. I was damned if Oswald's prophecy would become who I was, and I would die before I ended a nation. But all that comes to mind is that it feels like an avalanche. I feel myself go under, and it grips me via the throat. Every time I place the mask on, I look to the floor and witness tobacco. Curious. George Finch, do you know of anyone entering this vault apart from myself and Sergeant McLean? No one, Doctor. At least, I can't divulge that information to you. I apologize. Whilst wondering what he was protecting, I utter, You will not tell me, Mr. Finch, but you will confess to another. Tell me, what do you fear? Fear, sir? Never mind, officer. Never mind. As I smile with vicious intent and turn away, almost promising to return in order to cure this infection of loyalty, which had crept into their society of liars and martyrs of corruption. Judging the poor and helpless, whilst the rich and higher classes are approved for discontent and murder. The only difference is theirs is starvation and cruelty, rather than direct taking of life. But then if we cannot see that which is wrong with us, then surely it doesn't need to change. How wrong I have thought we are, but there is hope. If one changes... Millions may follow, and one day disease will be no more. War will be unnecessary, and we may live as one. The divine and the flesh united as the greatest empire born to this world, ever the dreamer. I return to my asylum, embraced by my ravens upon entry, each one calling to me. Doctor, do you have to go out there tonight? Yes, my ravens. I must dwell amongst the living, so that the dead may rest. But do not fear, for fear is weakness, and the enemy will exploit that. Have I not taught you better? Yes, Doctor. We will not fear. He will protect you. Scarcrow protects no one, my ravens. No disrespect, Doctor. But we were referring to another. I need him more each day, my ravens. More each day.
not only for protection for others, but for my salvation. A darkness grows inside you, Doctor, but we do not fear you. You are kind to us. Only to those who dwell in the dark. But when exposed to light, I doubt its existence. And I don't wish to lose any of you as I change. I must find a way to control it. Was it not a wise man who said control is an illusion? Well remembered, my ravens. God must surpass the illusion of control. That is my trouble. Always trying to fight that which is too great for me alone. I must yield to his will. Thank you, my ravens, for this revelation. And now for one more. Pass me Scarcrow. And as I place the mask over my head, I see my vision dim as the material passes over my eyelids and across my lips, clenching my neck as it falls into position, tightening as a serpent and constricting my breath. I raise my head to my ravens and pronounce in a dark and cloaked voice, Scatter to the winds, and I will return to you in the morning of the rising sun. My eyes are now tinged with red in the corners, as I lay to sleep but achieve no such peaceful rest, envying that of the dead, as they no longer have to wake unto this darkness we had made for future generations. But alas, I was to change that. With Jekyll missing, I was the only one who could stop Finch's master plan, stop mankind from its own poison, stop Bloodsnitch. I walked through the hatch in the ground, leading to the cellar, where all my instruments were kept, the Iron Maiden, the Angel, amongst others, such as the treatments used in the asylum itself, water treatments, and shock therapies, all instruments of torture used to evoke fear within my patients in the name of justice, no matter how much darkness they caused. So long as I achieved that all-important confession, feeding this agent of conviction that was living within me, I journeyed through a network of tunnels constructed in the Georgian times, I believe, with a complex illumination system of flammable liquid which often allows me to navigate undetected, certainly useful. Opening the door above me, I rise into a dark alley, hiding all detail in smog and lack of lanterns, raising out of it as a coffin. I lift my head to the sky, seeing the moon as the only light shining amongst the darkness, with glimmering lights scattered around it. Fitting, I thought. Very well, old friend. We are in this together. Shall we? I speak to the moon as it watches over me, and begin to make my way toward another old friend, one which had value to me, as well as the opportunity to save them, before they completely destroyed themselves. Walking through the streets, they are still awake, with carriages and horsemen trundling at speeds rivaling the motor cars by day, almost revealing a lost world, enshrouded in the dark of night, which is pure, truthful, and itself, with no eyes around it to judge, but only to sleep as it continues past them. A blissful ignorance. But soon will come the day when this will all be lost, and the light will change everything into what it wants to be visible, rather than allow those who fly by night to remain unchanged. An owl haunts the night sky, flying over my head, its markings and coloration portraying its species and staring through my eyes, knowing me behind the mask and telling me that freedom is so close. Just believe and you will soar. A feather drops and I clasp it to treasure among those dropped by him on previous evenings, on the interior of my coat lining, my attire, as that of a Native American. It roosts in the roof of the brothel, watching me as I enter, almost as my guardian angel, wise, free, and beyond my physical understanding. I knock upon the bright red door and tap the pillar with three scratches, 
to show my presence to all of those expecting me, whilst holding a level of secrecy. Scarcrow, come in. It is so cold out there. I must say, I enjoy the cold. It braces you, don't you find? In that mask, I am surprised you are not warm. My outside is, rather. But alas, my heart is frozen over, and most days I feel as if I am treading on thin ice. I never stood a chance with any of your girls, did I? Oh, do not proclaim such things, Scarcrow. I'm sure my girls could melt your heart. And the nails left from those who have carved it from my chest before. I'm afraid it is not my girls which will take them out for you, but you, and you alone. Perhaps you are right, but my good doctor tells me that you have acquired a new sacrifice. Don't call them that. You know I feel guilt-ridden, as it is, with your doctor prompting me all hours of the day to have them treated for their ailments. A decent man, but he does not understand what it is to struggle and survive in this world. You have to be as a parasite, thriving off the bodies of others. Is that not right? Slaves, however you look at it. Oh, Go and take what you require, and I will see about sending the girls to the hospital for their check. Okay? Happy now. As I pass her, I wink my right eye and nod, if not for her sake, for the remaining souls which had yet to stand a chance of life, without it being stripped amidst the prime of their youth by an invisible killer which had claimed so many before them. I ascend the stairs to a door, with a deadly nightshade pinned to the mid-center of its exterior, the leaves shriveled and dying, with only the flower retaining its dark beauty. Hello, Scarcrow. It's been a long time. Please, come in. The doctor said you would come. The doctor has a way of drawing us together, does he not, deadly nightshade? That he does. I think he's a cupid, simply wishing you to be happy. He's a fool if he thinks I will find happiness. Happiness must be taken, and I will take mine someday. Come, come. You are always against the world which raised you. And for what? Looking for a reason to condone your experiments. Is that it? Something like that. Man does not deserve mercy. My mind flashes again. This time to our parting. With her eyes full of expectation. Only to meet a stranger. Oh, she barely knew. Jack, what are you doing here? Where is Scarcrow? He's supposed to be meeting me here. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you knew. He said he told you. He did. And that is why I'm here, Nightshade. He and I are leaving for Oxford. What? I wish to pursue medicine, and he has something he needs to take care of. Why wouldn't he tell me? He said the path is too dangerous to follow. I'm so sorry. Could he at least say goodbye? I'm afraid not. I am to meet him there by tomorrow. If only... We could have been. My dear Jack... You and I will always be friends. Nothing more. I understand. I just hope he didn't hurt you this way. Well, I suppose you did warn me. And I didn't listen. You couldn't have known. Say goodbye for me, Jack. And thank you for being there for me. You are a true friend to me. She holds me close, and I rest her head to my chest, wishing never to part ways. Goodbye, Charlotte. And I am sorry. Truly, I am. I turn and walk away, leaving her none the wiser, opening my eyes to the present. 
and yet you spared my life. You are different. No different to any of them. They are simply yet to be given a chance to prove you wrong, is all. It is not as simple as that. Well then, tell me why your Lord and Saviour would be crucified and die the most horrific death, his organs visible and blood pouring from his anointed body for hours upon end if he did not think you worthy, let alone all of humanity. And yet how many are thankful, Nightshade? How many know of what he did? It is feared more than loved now. And soon it will be forgotten, a myth hidden because the people wish not to see that which reminds them there is a better world. They are too busy trying to make improvements to this broken mirror themselves, too busy trying to be gods, that they have forgotten why he is. You are filled with passion, Scarcrow, but you cannot save humanity, for it is already done. They just have to ask for forgiveness and repent of their ways and it is given to them freely by he who is justice, not by you. I know. I become frustrated with our lack of vision for potential, as a parent with an underachieving child. You, a parent, perish the thought. Your heart is ice-covered and full of nails, as though you could love anyone enough to bear a child. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean... No, you are right, Nightshade. My heart is ice-covered and full of nails, but it wasn't always that way. Life has a way of changing things, and I am a monster for not wishing to raise a child in this world. You see how children fare. Would you wish that for your children, to perish the same fate as those around them? I would rather spend eternity alone than sentence my offspring to a life of deceit and darkness. Is that so wrong? No. But cutting yourself off from all those around you and depriving yourself of love is that which turns your eyes this way? For if you loved, humanity would love back. You said full of nails, Nightshade. I have tried to love humanity, and every time it has been as an Aztec sacrifice, offering my heart to anyone truest, only to have a dagger thrust through it. I wish things were different, but until I am proven otherwise, I fear that my eyes will remain blind to humanity's Redemption. Not all of us are there to hurt you, Scarcrow. If you would only let us in, we may just surprise you. She whispers in my ear, as she brings her arm across my chest and turns me toward her infinite gaze, breathing ever so calmly and placing her hand on my neck, maneuvering toward the back, thus drawing closer to me. I thrust my hand between our faces, revealing nothing but a syringe to scare her away, saying, Nice try, temptress. But you will have to do better than that. Oh, yes. I forgot you are a gentleman after all, and do not wish to partake in such lustful exploits. I simply do not wish to fall onto your trap, is all. Your fruit may be beautiful to the eye, but your touch is that of toxin, which flows through the veins, slowly lapping life as it takes effect. Love is no such thing. Besides, in my profession, love is reserved for only one despite being shared between so many lovers. A valid point, Scarcrow. How could I convince you it does exist? Show me to him, deadly nightshade. Show me to God, and I will know what love is, and its reality. I'm afraid I've taken enough lives. I would not wish to take yours for your peace to come. However, given the chance, I would show you the meaning of love in the meeting of two friends lost, and then found. Perhaps another time. You told the doctor you had news for me. What was it? Yes, well, 
If you require information, then I will require something from you. Do not test me, Nightshade. It is most unwise. I simply wish you to tell me why you left and stayed away for so long. You would not like the man I had become under Bloodsnitch. I have claimed lives, broken families, and destroyed countless possessions with little remorse. How could I return to you as that? A man so hollow that I barely recognize myself. And what is more, it is not your cross to bear. What if that is my decision? She lays her hand upon mine as I rest upon the window sill, leaning toward me and closing her eyes. I rise to my feet, embracing her in my arms, and reignite the passion which had once consumed us both. After my retraction and the delirium subsides, I apologize for my actions and coax her to proceed with her information. Forgive me. It must have been the doctor underneath. Do not fear, Scarcrow. I understand. You wish me not to see your face, for it is unrecognizable, but I do not see you for your appearance, but for the soul of an angel which dwells within. Not for your past, but for your future. Not for your sin, but for your redemption. You are my hope, Nightshade. And whether I am blind to your allure or not, I know it in my heart that the only thing left to me is hope, is you. As I clutch her waist and draw her near again, I yield fully this time to her seduction. As the night consumes us both, and the candles begin to dim into complete and utter darkness, the room is lit anew with the sun's light, and I find myself at Nightshade's bedside, leaving her to slumber a moment longer before I awaken her. I had remained a gentleman under control, for fear it may cost me more than my faith, but if I was to be truthful, Nightshade was my dark princess, and I wanted nothing more than to be at her side when she awoke. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss the ideas that have been brought forth in the chapter that's just been read to you, and break them down, basically saying where their inspirations have come from, just to help you along your process and show you sort of the backstage pass, if you will, to how we devised the chapters. So getting started off, we see in this chapter that Dr. Lantern, as a character, is very much haunted by his past. He keeps receiving these flashbacks of his time in the asylum, so the various different tortures which he conducted on certain patients, and it was all in the name of justice. You know, it was a way to justify his actions, even though they had a dark undertone. He was able to torture these men who were deserving of punishment, but it was justified in the sense of making them confess their guilt. But when you take into consideration the fact that they had been found innocent before a jury or condemned to an asylum because of mental instability, it almost makes it like Dr. Lantern, through the persona of Scarcrow, was exploiting these men, even though in the eyes of the public, they may have deserved their treatment. It's still rather vengeance as opposed to actual justice. The second point is another reference to a song. All the way through these chapters, you'll find references to lyrics or the name of a song as a chapter. And in this case, we see another introduction of a couple of lyrics um, in the sense that Dr. Lantern mentions... It feels like an avalanche. I feel myself go under. And then there's a later reference in the same chapter where he mentions it feels like he's treading on thin ice. This is a reference to several lyrics of 
a song called Avalanche by Bring Me The Horizon. Now, this is a band that I've only just recently got into. And it's interesting because their earlier stuff I wasn't really that into because it was literally just screaming the entire time. And I don't really go much on that style, even though I myself like that particular style of music. But their more recent stuff has been more melodic, almost, which I'm sort of more akin to to liking. So in listening to that, whilst you're writing, it found its way into the subsequent chapter. And it's just reference to another band that I listen to because I love doing things like that. The third point is we get an insight into the darkened secrets of the asylum. Because as Dr. Lantern prepares himself to take on the persona of Scarcrow once more, he goes into the under catacombs that are beneath the foundations of his asylum. And we're introduced to several torture devices that have been left there. You know, he mentions the Iron Maiden, he mentions the Angel. These are all different torture devices which he would have used back in his past to, as we mentioned before, conduct the torture of criminals in order to obtain those confessions. And we see that, as in the case of what Scarcrow, as a metaphor, represents, the asylum also helps to influence that point. The fact that, as people... We can put on a good show. We can show uh, almost like a, a self-righteousness about ourselves on the face of things, you know, so we can make out to people that we're humanitarians and, and you know, we're, we're positive and we have a, a positive influence. But secretly, there's always that darker, more primitive side to everyone that's hidden away from prying eyes. You know, there's those guilty pleasures. There's those looked down upon actions that we commit as people that we prefer to keep away from prying eyes. We prefer to keep it away. And it just it just reminds of that point that Scarcrow, as well as the asylum, builds on this point that there are two sides to a person. It represents, in essence, the light and dark side of humanity. The fourth point is a reference to a film. Now, we do this all the time in chapters, as I've mentioned before in previous episodes. We mention to games, films, music. And this is this is one of those references to a film where Scarcrow mentions the line, happiness must be taken and I will take mine. Now, this is from Kung Fu Panda 2. If anyone has seen Kung Fu Panda 2, I highly recommend it. It's a great film. I personally think it's much better than the first one. And there's a moment there where the character of Lord Shen, he's like a white peacock, played by Gary Oldman. He mentions this line. He turns around and he's like, happiness must be taken and I will take mine. And it's one of my favourite lines because obviously I love Lord Shen in um, Kung Fu Panda 2. I think he's a fantastic character. And obviously it made its way into this subsequent chapter. The fifth and final point is probably the most elaborate of the five. When we see this confrontation between the character of Scarcrow and his former paramour of Deadly Nightshade. Now, we're taken, first of all, into a flashback to show you that they had intentions of courting each other and then Scarcrow and Dr. Lantern went away to Oxford to study medicine, whereas Scarcrow sought to join with Bloodsnitch. And this put dampers on the whole courting between those two. But now that they've met again, there's sort of those emotions are rekindled. But we see throughout the interaction of these characters that there's two sides to an argument which seems to crop up a lot during this particular novel. And that's the question of whether humanity deserves to be redeemed 
or whether it deserves to be damned. Now, Scarcrow, up to this point, has very much been on the side of damnation. You know, he's more willing to commit humanity to a dark place. You know, he doesn't see any redemptive qualities in humanity. Whereas the other side of that fence is represented by Deadly Nightshade, who's continuously reassuring him there are redemptive qualities of mankind. You can't give up on mankind. And we sort of see this going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards between the two as they exchange arguments for either side. And this is something that we love to do in our writing process. We love to give both sides to an argument and sort of have the two characters go back and forth so it gives you as many arguments for both sides as possible. And then it allows yourself as the reader or yourself as the listener basically to make up your own mind because, you know, that's how opinions are forged and should be committed, I believe. You know, you should make an opinion based on both sides of the argument and it's because it's your conviction, not because you've been swayed by a particular person's rhetoric or a particular person's argument has convinced you because it sounds more factual than the others. You know, it's it's your personal conviction. That's the reason why you have your opinions in the first place, why you change your opinions should you choose to do so. And it just gives you that opportunity. And in this case, it represented a period of time as I was writing Scarcrow. We were barely a couple of months removed from writing A Light in the Mist. And we were in a process where there was a lot of turmoil within our family. And it ended up, to cut a long story short, dividing the family into two, where you'd have a load of people on one side and a load of people on the other side. And emotions were high, um, especially myself. I found myself confused, upset, but also angry and bitter toward the people that had decided to sort of forsake those family bonds, people that had given their word that they'd be there for you the entire time, and then they decided to go back on their word. And that sort of expressed itself through the character of Scarcrow in the sense that all that bitterment, all that anger toward those people and toward humanity itself was expressed. So that's why Scarcrow comes across as a very vengeful character, a character who is more likely to see the darker elements, you know, the character who fixates on what humanity has done to hurt that particular character. Because at the time when I was writing, those were the feelings that I was feeling. You know, I felt betrayed by those closest to me. I felt like every time I gave my heart to someone or gave my friendship to someone, they would just stab me in the back. But in the same time as writing, in the same mindset, whilst my heart was in the character of Scarcrow, feeling all these emotions, my mind, obviously being the logic side of things, was more toward Deadly Nightshade, you know, convincing me, well, you've got to remember, not everyone's out there to hurt you. There are some people who are for you. Look at the people who are still with you, even though this has happened. Look at the people who are still around you, still supporting you. You know, try not to forsake them. Try not to get angry at them or bitter at them. So it was sort of this conflict of will, so to speak. It was like my emotional side battling my logic side. And it was an interesting series of debates that, as I say, as a writer, especially if you allow your emotions to be portrayed or your logic, then your personal convictions or your personal experiences to be conveyed within your writing, you'll see it happen yourself where you you take your emotion side into one character and your logic manifests itself into another character and you might have like a verbal exchange between the two which helps to create drama but it tells of an internal struggle within yourself as the author 
which I feel adds more of a depth to your writing and gives more of a personal touch. It makes it mean that much more. Now, suffice to say, that division repaired itself and our family, there are still elements, obviously, that need work and there are still people that are out of touch because of the whole experience. But the majority of cases, everything is fine. Yeah, my parents are back together and everything is is okay now. So it's more of a representation of what happened during that time, why these characters are the way they are. And if you are comfortable as an author expressing these emotions, expressing these experiences in life through your writing, I would encourage you, should you feel comfortable with it, to go for it. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, because people reading your work will be able to relate to that so much more should they know you've actually gone through that experience, lived that experience, come through that experience, rather than just fabricate an experience, but you've never known it, you've never felt it. Okay, so that about sums it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, as it says, these are the tips of the trade, where we discuss the various hints and tips that we've discovered as an author over the last three years and basically sharing them with you who may be wanting to become authors yourselves or those of you who are authors that just want that little bit extra just to sort of help you in your journey. So today we're going to be discussing the topic of balance within your writing. Now what I mean by this is normally during the writing process, especially during our earlier works, we were more accustomed to being very description heavy or dialogue heavy. Those of you who have read A Light in the Mist, or those of you who have listened to season one of Ignite the Flame Audio, those of you who have listened to that or read that will know that it's more balanced. It's got quite a bit of description, but it's sort of counterbalanced with quite a bit of dialogue. Whereas in this particular novel, at least up until this point, you'll notice that it's far more dialogue heavy. For some novels, that works. It just depends on your readers. It depends on the demographic that you're trying to reach out to and what people prefer. But finding that balance between dialogue and description, as I say, largely depends on your demographic that you're trying to reach, but it also depends on the kind of story that you're trying to portray. But in another way that it can be applied is the sense of when you're writing with a historical background, as we tend to do, a lot of the time you'll do your research and then you want to get that research sort of incorporated into the story. But sometimes you could be a bit too full on so it sort of starts to sound like a non-fiction novel what I would advise you to do when you've actually done your research just dot those facts here and there maybe like one every couple of pages or just just something that helps to set the scene you know so for instance if you're describing say a street describe it in the way that those houses would have appeared back in that time and then don't make reference to the historical place for another few pages you know If you're using it as far as dialect or dialogue is concerned, you know, dot the occasional word here and there rather than try to speak in ye olde English or whatever language you're trying to come across in. Because sometimes it can just feel like a bit too full on. So finding that balance is essential because what you have to bear in mind is you are still telling a story, which is fiction. And if you wish to be hard on facts, then there's non-fiction that you can write in to compensate for that. So... When you're writing fiction, just remember to sort of balance it out between historical figures or historical facts or people. Be sure to just dot them around. You know, don't be too full on. Don't feel like you have to do an Assassin's Creed and literally like 
world build within a historical period because sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming as far as facts and it can sort of take away from the story rather than add to it which is what you're trying to do so there's always that sense of balance that you need to find and this is just two of those ways in which you can use balance to better your writing but as I say it largely depends on the demographic you're trying to reach out to your readers your audience and what story you're trying to convey as in all decisions with regards to your writing the choice is yours. It's up to you. You're the author. You're the creator. The decision is yours. But just bear it in mind that balance is key. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. And that's it for episode six. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in to Ignite the Flame. It means the world to us that you would take time out of your otherwise busy schedule to make us a part of your lives. By this point, you're about halfway through the season. So hopefully you've enjoyed it so far and hopefully you'll feel inclined to go through the second half. Of course, we'll include all the links below to any of the sources that have been mentioned in this episode just to give you any and all founts of information that you would otherwise require access to. Right now, I'm just going to take some opportunity to talk about a project that we've been promoting throughout this entire season, which is a painting and mural company started up by a good friend of mine, Callum Young, who specializes in graphic design for the branding of particular companies. Such companies include River Island, various different pubs and clubs all across Southampton area, some of which we've actually been to and seen ourselves, so we can vouch for the credibility of his designs. Basically, if you want to head on over to Top Dog Studios' website, that's www.topdogstudios, all lowercase letters, .co.uk. There are parts there in the website that allow you to fill in your name, your email address, your phone number. You can tell Callum a little bit about your project. And there's a part where you can put your budget and the timescale in which you want it done. So if you are looking for a professional artist to represent your brand, or if you know anyone that's interested in having their brand represented by a professional artist in a graphic way or via a graphic design, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios and drop Callum a line. And I'm sure he'd be interested to hear about your project. Okay, guys, thank you very much once again for tuning in to this episode. And as I said before, I hope that you've taken everything you wish from it. And you continue to do so from the second half of this season. And I just want to wish you a fantastic day. Whatever you're doing, go out there and give it your all. Give it 100%. Okay, guys, as always, thank you for tuning in. I'm Wayne Telford. And I'll see you next time.